Today's story concerns adult subject matter for mature listeners. If that's not your cup of tea, or there are youngsters listening, please skip this one and come back for another story another time. You're listening to the voice of Dog. This is Rob McWolf, your fellow traveler, and today's story is the first of two parts of The Vixen and the Vampire by Kohitsuji, who hopes his fellow night creatures will enjoy this one, however grim it may seem. You can find more of his stories on Fur Affinity under Kohitsuji Writes. Read by Luna, your internet half-creature. Please enjoy The Vixen and the Vampire by Kohitsuji, part one of two. A temper fair, with gentle air, the sunshine and the rain, that kindly earth with timely birth may yield her fruits again. Edward White Benson The two of them fled across the mountains in the cold winter moon, the fledgling and her sire. She was a red fox, slender and hard as a dueling blade. The vampire was the vampire, and he was master, his chiropter and body forever burning and forever bound. The smoking tricrosses he wore on chains about his robes kept him in permanent, painful check. He moved with all of night's dark grace, and she hopped along behind as best she could. Now and then, he was obliged to stop and patiently wait for her, standing against the sky, and it was as if the stars behind him had been swallowed by the void. There was no helping it. Sister Linnet was only a year among the dead. Slow, he said to her, voice like leather that had once been soft but was now frayed and brittle. Dawn will break one hour. The thought stirred her into a panic, even if she knew perfectly well that evening had only just settled itself an hour or two ago. A fledgling vampire is sometimes little more than an unthinking animal, and even for those who keep their wits, instinct, rules, the master was a man of fathomless compassion, but results came before all with him, and service shortly after. He did not abide animals. The vixen met him at last, standing on the mountain summit, looking down upon the winter fields. The master extended one long claw, pointing down at the great city below, with its ivory turrets glimmering like snow sculptures in the patchy moonlight. Verse of grass is here, he rasped. No plume of steam rose from his lips to be snatched away by the wind. Yeah, she said, relatively certain he is. Relatively. It was a question and Sister Linnet looked away. It was years ago. We barely spoke. He paid me for the job. I did it. He seemed mortal then. The master was silent, but the fledgling did not lift her eyes. Her life as a thief had been short and full of terror, but it had been hers. This non-life was someone else's, but still, she clung to it very hard. After what felt like a long time, the master said, is mortal still. A pause. Go and take his head. Go what? Her heart nearly beat again, and she felt fear move in her like the passage of a thunderbolt. Lynette looked at him, moon caught in the red ring trap of her eyes, and she betrayed herself. Master hated fear in his fledgling. Too late now, she was caught. 
I'm a year old, she whispered, trying to bite each word back into her mouth even as she said them. Master, he's a magus. He'll pull me in half. Year is long enough. Kill. He pointed at the city again. Or wait for sunrise. Expect you in three days. As she looked back into his scarlet eyes, Sister Linnet's paws began to tremble. Yes, Master, was all she said. They parted, and she fled for shelter before the breaking day. When the morning arrived, she was already curled in the back of some dank and dripping cave, dreaming the way they dream when they are young and cannot get back to their coffins. Fitfully. She pleads with them to stop. She says anything. She says she will do anything. She tells them things, truths and lies, incredible fantasies, whatever comes to mind, whatever they want. They can have it, if only they will put down the fucking cross. Sometimes it is the sisters. Sometimes it is a gangly-maned wolf friar who holds her head and peels up her eyelids with a claw. Sometimes she sees the master looking out of the shadows his silhouette obscured by the dancing fume of his holy bondage. Unlike newly-turned Linnet, he can wear crosses. He wears them always, and that which seemed to her inexplicable in life now seems like ravening insanity. Days, she stares into that cross, the three sets of arms carving out technicolor afterimages in her vision that haunt her scant sleep. For weeks, she burns and yet is not consumed. Is it a pleasure to watch her seize and foam and shake? Do they enjoy it? Every single one of them has bright red eyes and every single pair reveals nothing. That was how her nights began, usually. But as it is the case for many fledglings, Lynette's dreams allowed time and memory to convolute. The maned wolf friar makes her touch it, makes her hold it, and the pain eclipses that of having to look, but he says to hold it, in the name of God, hold it, or we will push a stake through your heart right now. Right now. Her master wipes a single bloody tear from her cheek and says, Better today. The one-armed rabbit nun leads in a feral swine on a leash. You looked hungry, sister. Just leave him by the door when you're done, and we'll have him for supper, too. Aren't things better when we work together? The liturgy, the prayer, the explanations, the recital, the humility before the red god, the scraping in the dark as she is taught to sharpen knives. She takes the iron chain and, shaking, slips it over her neck. A lit match to rest between her breasts, a little iron tri-cross that she finally came to tolerate after weeks of torture. Her master's voice never goes away, N never should go away, burns me always, impairs, affects language centers. Brocas area, aphasia, damage may be permanent, cannot know, will never take them off. 
It is the most he has ever said at once. The warm leather of his wings as he holds her when she sobs. Strange compassion in the dark. All this world within Sister Linnet's daylight dreaming, and because she had no coffin, the thoughts and memories harried her, picking at her like birds. But the master learned to endure it. He found peace. She, too, could learn. But it was a matter of discipline and time. Once Linnet asked the master how old he was. Very. He'd said, and smiled with those two long fangs hanging down from that slender flying fox muzzle. Of all her nightmares, the memory of that smile terrified her the most, and always she saw it when night fell, and she awoke again to hunger. The fledgling had to make do with vermin. They weren't remotely satisfying to her anymore, even in great need, but she caught them anyway. She snapped their little spines and sipped to her distant approximation of content, while the squeaks and the jerking slowly stilled. Sister Lynnet drained each one away until she was sure she could keep her unrelenting hunger at bay while she was knocking on doors and asking questions. The townspeople did not want to be questioned. They saw her robes and her cross and her eyes and shrunk away. They hurried home, feeling unconsciously the chill of her shadow stretching toward them. Each of them said something like, It's late, ask tomorrow morning, or we've no shelter for you flagellants, or... Sympathetic to the faith though we are, we know nothing, sister. But she knew they meant, you scare me, and if I let you inside my home, you will kill me. Her former life as a thief never earned her any love, but at least she could get something out of an hour or two's questioning. Outside the walls of her monastery, this was generally how things were, particularly late at night. Some ancient mortal instinct loathed her presence, and her master had not yet revealed the methods by which she might twist it or make it go blind. Eventually, she had to catch them on the street outside of taverns she could not enter. Each time, Linnet took pains to be cautious and delicate with her questions. I'm looking for an old banker, Rafford Bucolo. He's a mule deer, maybe 40. He used to live in this town. But with every word, her audience sensed her lurking interest in their throats and caught more and more frequent glimpses of her eyes. He moved out years ago was the common response, but nobody seemed to know precisely where the banker had gone. The night was beginning to drag on, and frustration was settling in. Midnight came, and she knew nothing, and all the while she was pondering the consequences of failure. The master had left them totally unsaid. Sister Leonard has been made aware of his capacity for the unspeakable, so she fretted up and down the streets, searching desperately with increasing incaution. She almost didn't hear it when someone called, Hey, sister! Her hunger however, pricked up its ears. An old otter in a mariner's coat waved his paw to her from the doorway warm with lamplight. Sister, he whispered, called again, and Lynnet went to him. It had been so long since a voice expressed eagerness to her, want of her, that she felt a finger of reverent joy run itself along her dead heart. He smiled at the fox and went inside, calling, Come in, please, I'll make you tea. And in an instant, the ancient magic defending his home was torn from the building, ripped like a bandage from a wound that had not yet healed. Sister Lynette walked right through his front door, marveling. No one else had ever done it for her before. They all seemed to know better. 
She stared longingly around at the humble home, simple and orderly. A fire was burning hot at the far end of the room, and on the hearth were a number of simple effects. Trinkets and curios from the distant southern continent, talismans, charms. Such things counted as symbols of faith, but they had been made to drive off evil spirits and not vampires. She only felt a faint pressure. "'Come, warm yourself by the fire,' said the otter. "'Aren't you cold? You'll, you'll freeze to death out there.' "'Oh,' said Sister Linnet, and folded her ears in a posture of apology. "'Shit, she wasn't remotely dressed for winter. "'No wonder people were avoiding her. "'They walked miles of frozen winter ground, "'and Master had simply let her wander into town without mentioning it. "'This was a lesson, an examination. "'Yes, of course.' I'm quite sorry. Someone took my coat coming out of a tavern, and I've been hopeless ever since. The otter gave her a sympathetic look and took her to a pair of plainly upholstered chairs by the fire, and Lynette politely sat down when one was offered. That'll be because you're red cloth. They hate the church out here. They think you're a lot of sadists and flagellants. Lynette smiled in a way that didn't show her fangs. They think you're here with one of your inquisitors, looking to chop people's fingers off. But look at you, you're a poor young girl out alone. Old Sully knows better. He smiled and tapped his round brown head. The old red church did me a good turn several years ago. They might not be as polite as the Four Fortunes devotees or have the Heliod's cathedrals, but you're no... He struggles to find a polite enough word. He fails. Cult? Very charitable, Mr. Sully. I'm Sister Linnet. On behalf of the Church of the Red God, I bless you and your house. Peace attend thee, sufferer. Oh, he chuckled, delighted that Linnet had concealed her offense. I'm no sufferer, I'm no devotee, see, but as I said, your folk did me a kindness once, long ago. The otter stood and bustled to a kettle, which rested on a table short ways away. He sloshed it and set it by the fire. And... What kindness has done me, I pay back. When he sat back down, he saw that the good sister's gaze had wandered. Lynette's eyes traced the curiosities on the otter's mantelpiece for a moment. Many different lands out there, places she had never seen, could never have gone when she was alive. Now she was immortal. She could walk this earth until the sun took her or she was otherwise slain. She could visit them all now, and there was no real rush if she managed somehow not to lose to the verse of grass. The fledgling's gaze lingered on a small statuette, a totemic wolf representative of male aspect of his entire species. He was warlike and proud and an inarguably good fit for the job of male aspect, Lynette judged. Her mind wandered to the gray wolf kite, her fellow orphan, thief, and slave, and how she could run her paws through his luscious winter pelt, warm and soft, how she could make him laugh by sticking her cold nose in his neck fur when she could manage to sneak up on him. She thought of his dismantled body in the hands of the master in the last moments of her wretched life. And then she had to stop thinking. Sister Linnet, Sully said, something catch your eye. Oh, she snapped out of her reverie. I'm sorry, I was just admiring the... Not the wolf. She scanned for something else. Her eyes landed on a little scrap of paper, on which was a lovely charcoal rendering of a young hyena with a roguish smile. Drawing of the young man. Someone took very great pains with all that fine detail. Very great, said the otter. That's Ulia. I drew that the day he came aboard the vessel I was serving on. 
he barely spoke the language. The first mate took him to go down to the scuppers as he was to be our cook, and Ulia decked the bastard right in his muscle. I hated that first mate so much, Ulia and I became friends for life. Sully smiled up at the picture, but Linnick could feel a little bit of a sorrow weighing down on the otter's expression. The new predator in her sat at attention in the presence of mortal woe. He was, as it happens, that good turn I mentioned earlier. What did the church have to do with your vessel? She said, trying to disguise her hunger and swaying her tail genially. Nothing. We sailed together for seven years, and I took him back to my homeland out in the Western Horn. When we came into port, I was informed that my father had passed away while we'd been at sea. I thought it was fate. My father wasn't a wealthy man, but I had a home for us now. We had our wages. We could live in peace. He could cook for me. Anything he wished. We had peppers from his home, spices. We were comfortable. You were lovers, said Lynette. Best friends, Sully said, and then shook his head. And lovers and everything. Her eyes widened. And she looked at the sketch again. The dark operator within her spirit prowled back and forth, listening for every word. But the West... Yes, he said. You don't need to remind me. It was foolish to think we could have been left alone in our little world. Sully went silent for a little. They, um... Found us one night in our bed. They dragged him out because I was... Well, because... He gestured, and Linnet took it to mean the hyena had been submitting at the time. The judge was present. I hardly had time to dress before they began stoning him. The lovely pain of this was threatening to make her drool, and the vixen had to look away several times. She could smell a tear threatening to form on his eye, and the mixture of hunger and the single drop of cold, clear pity the otter inspired was unnerving to feel. She breathed deep, meditated on scripture, and willed herself to be still. I'm sorry, she said at last. You don't have to be, Sally said. A priest of the Red God was there. He stood over Ulia and said, what man has appointed the death of the sufferer? And the judge said that it was the custom of our people to stone men who waste their lives in idleness and disease. The priest drew his sword and struck off the paw of the judge at the wrist. A thick old black bear, too. I thought it was a trick of the moonlight at first. And the red priest said, oh, what was the phrase he used? There is nothing in this life that is wasted, even pain. The hand of the red god is turned against you. And they left. Lenet's ear flicked. And Ulia lived, Sully said, and looked longingly up at the charcoal sketch. For a time, we left with all we could, of course, but after he healed, he developed these terrible shakes, and I... He swallowed. I lost him within five years. I never loved again. The magnitude of her starvation was incredible. He was bothering to hide nothing. It was obscene, like a feral fawn rolling in blood before a feral wolf. The fox's mouth was so dry. But I never forgot that priest. Or the Church of the Red God. Sully gave her a weak smile. 
That was many years ago, in any case. I'm just happy you can be warm tonight, sister. She would never be warm again. Happy, too, of course, that I can share my tea. Do you want some? The pot whistled, and she said yes, because if she didn't drink something, the violence she was contemplating would manifest. Some insane scrap of humanity that had clung to her bones when all the rest was hewn away was insisting vehemently that she stop herself. It was like asking an ant to crush an elephant, but somehow she managed it. They talked all night long. She talked about what she could of life at the chapel, her fellow sisters of the cloth. She performed a few recitations of scripture, and he did not know them well enough to correct her when she had to fill forgotten gaps with convincing invention. In return, Sully told her stories of his time with Ulia, and she didn't mind because she was an Eastern girl at heart. She asked him about Rafford, and he told her the man lived out in a copse just north of the town in a little villa. He hardly ever came to town anymore, and many had forgotten he belonged to it in the first place. This was excellent news. When at last they decided to retire, the otter showed her the way to the cellar, where she wished to sleep, and then he bid her good night. Sully did not see or hear her behind him on the stairs. The good sister spent most of the night's remainder hunched over his sleeping body with her muzzle wide open, and those strings of drool from her fangs hung down to do up his neck. The otter did not stir. This was the first of two parts of The Vixen and the Vampire by Kohatsuchi, read for you by Luna, your internet half-creature. Tune in next time to find out how the fledgling tests her mettle against one of the magi, reckoned to be the greatest sorcerer tyrants in all the world. As always, you can find more stories on the web at thevoice.doll, or find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Voice of Dog.